Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Not so United Nations, President Trump promises a strong message on China. Lockdown light, the UK tightens restrictions for offices, bars and restaurants. And leading the charge, Elon Musk to unveil Tesla's new battery technology. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. I will welcome once again to the show as we begin the full season of First Move. It's typically an incredibly busy week here in New York as world leaders congregate to discuss the big issues of the day. This year, of course, the 75th UN General Assembly is entirely virtual. As I mentioned, President Trump's address is coming up this hour. We will bring that to you when it happens. We'll also be hearing from Russian President Vladimir Putin and China's President Xi Jinping throughout the day. Now, in the meantime, autumn is the season for pumpkin spice, falling leaves and a biting chill. And there was a definite shiver, I think, on Wall Street on Monday. U.S. stocks fell for the fourth day in a row. Futures, as you can see, rather mixed. Nasdaq futures are bouncing back some six-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500, meanwhile, begins the session 8% below the record highs set just three weeks ago. So that gives you a sense of what we've seen in terms of pullback. We're dealing, I think, with what I'd call uncertainty overload at this moment. We have clearly, as you saw on that chart, come a long way since the March lows. But now hopes of further financial aid to support the U.S. economy at least are dimming. When the U.S. slows, the world slows too. We are also six weeks out from an uncertain presidential election here in the U.S. and U.S.-China relations remain fraught. The president will certainly address those today. And of course, the COVID crisis. Countries like Brazil and India still battling high caseloads. The UK, as I mentioned, sees new infections are doubling about every seven days. The latest on those restrictions coming up shortly. And it was the recovery stocks that took a hit yesterday, weighing on the Asia session two overnight. In Europe, we can't forget banking giants, HSBC, Barclays and Deutsche Bank remain under pressure as they address new money laundering concerns. HSBC sitting at that 25-year low. Bring it back full circle here in the United States. Fed Chair Jay Powell is in the hot seat in front of Congress once again. And you know what he's going to say. Christine Romans joins me now. Uncertainty overload. Christine, great to have you with us. Jay Powell, I'm sure, will be sitting there thinking, if not saying, I've done my part. Now you guys have to do the same. 
Yeah, the Fed has done historic heavy lifting here in a historic moment in American history. We've never really seen something like this, where we turned the economy off on purpose to slow the spread of a pandemic that was killing thousands of people. Now, at any moment, 200,000 people in the United States. Now it's, it's the turn of Congress. And the Fed chief has said again and again that more support will be necessary. And by support, I mean shock absorbers for American families to pay their bills, to just stay solvent until we can get through this tough, tough moment. It doesn't look like Washington is taking that seriously at the moment. This is all about Supreme Court politics, a very chaotic uh, and toxic environment in Washington at the moment. And it looks like pandemic relief, more shock absorbers for American people is, is not at the top of the list at the moment. Yeah, shock absorbers, and this is a great word to describe it, needed all over the world. Let's be clear. The problem is on why we fixate on the U.S. economy is because it's so big in terms of the broader global economy that whatever happens here does have a huge impact everywhere else. It was interesting to look for me at what was moving and shifting yesterday and losing ground. It was recovery stocks. It was the airlines. It was the material stocks, the ones that do benefit in a recovery scenario. And that was very different from what we saw earlier in September, where it felt like a bit of froth was coming off some of the highly priced, relatively highly priced tech stocks. There is a concern here. And the fact that you had so many different asset classes all falling together, too, just led to a moment of kind of trepidation, uh, I I think. I mean, look, you and I have talked about this K-shaped recovery. I didn't coin it, but it's been around for for months now, this idea that there will be winners, the Amazons of the world and some of the the parts of the retail world that will be able to, uh, in this retail reset in the the post-pandemic world, that will be able to do very, very well. And there are other sectors and people, frankly, who won't who won't do well in this new K-shaped recovery here. And that's a real big concern. The Congress, I think, is missing a moment to try to make sure that we come out of this problem, this crisis, stronger than we went into it. And that's something that's missing. But you can just just listen to the tone in Washington, and that is not the conversation they're having. No. Attention is elsewhere, and that's to the detriment of uh, American families. Thank you very much. Christine Romans. The U.S. president says we should expect a strong message on China when he speaks to the U.N. General Assembly. The president's speech, like those of all leaders speaking today, was pre-recorded. Will Ripley joins me now. Will, no secret, the tensions clearly between these two nations, and it's been a story for the last four years. He's very careful not to criticise President Xi directly, though, and has remained so. Does that hold true today, do we think? We expect that to continue, Julia, because even though the Trump administration has arguably gone harder on China than any of the previous U.S. administrations in areas like trade and technology, and now, of course, the Trump administration branding the COVID-19 pandemic as the China virus, trying to deflect responsibility from President Trump's failures at home to uh, to contain the spread of the pandemic before the numbers really exploded out of control. But He has always praised President Xi's leadership. Of course, China gave him the red carpet welcome when the official state visit uh, when President Trump uh, traveled to China. He appreciated that very much. And President Trump also is one who really values the prestige of standing there at the green granite at the United Nations and having an audience to, I guess, read the room, uh, determine whether his his uh, statements are landing. And he won't have that. President Trump's message, like all the world leaders' messages, uh, is pre-recorded. He recorded it at some point on Monday. As you said, 
strong message towards China, which isn't anything new from the Trump administration. They're, you know, just barely came hours away from banning uh, TikTok, one of the most popular social media apps ever to come out of China. They have a dispute with WeChat, another social media app. Of course, the Huawei uh, ongoing dispute over 5G and cell phone technology. So, Julia, uh, from the United States side, expect to see President Trump go on the attack towards China, but probably throw in some praise for President Xi personally. President Xi, uh, if we can base just on what he was saying earlier uh, this week at the United Nations general debate, uh, he's going to have a much more uh, a message of cooperation. He's going to deny that China shirked its responsibilities in the early weeks and months of the pandemic to notify the world of what was happening. Uh, but overall, China's trying to position itself here as the new up-and-coming superpower, the one that's still willing to work together with the global community, even as the Trump administration, while representing the country uh, that was one of the key founders of the UN, uh, is basically going against a lot of these global norms. And we can expect to see more of that in the coming minutes. He's expected to speak possibly in the next, uh, next couple of hours, Julia. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating day. Perhaps a day, too, for focusing on the, how they act, perhaps more rather than what they say. Will Ripley, thank you so much for yeah. that. Now, speaking of that, this is the moment when we must act. The words of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the past hour or so as he announced tighter restrictions designed to slow the spread of COVID-19. Yesterday, on the advice of the four chief medical officers, the UK's COVID alert level was raised from three to four, the second most serious stage, meaning that transmission is high or rising exponentially. So this is the moment when we must Anna Stewart joins us now and can tell us all about these new measures. Anna, the one that stood out for me, and just to be clear, this is England we're talking about, new measures in England. The U-turn on trying to get everybody back to work, they're now saying, if you can work from home, do it. And that's a problem for the economy. Yes, of all the measures, in many ways, that's sort of the less exciting one compared to the curfew, which we can get onto in a minute. But telling people that they should work from home where possible, just weeks after the government actually tried to get everyone back to their offices, this is damaging because it's not just one sector that gets hit. It's travel. It's the office blocks. It's the landlords that owes them. It's the, the cafes, the bars, the restaurants. And it's going to be huge pressure on jobs across the board. And this, of course, Julia, is just as the furlough scheme is tapering. It ends at the next at the end of next month. And there were calls today for them to extend that scheme. The government needs to do more, people are saying, to help these businesses if they're going to increase restrictions, tell people to work from home. But so far, nothing on that yet. Um, I will mention the curfew for the hospitality sector. This is going to kick in on Thursday and one is, was one of the major measures announced today. They will have to close from 10 p.m. This is bars, restaurants, pubs, of course. And at 10 p.m., people have to be out. The pub has to be empty. The doors have to be shut, which effectively means uh, that last orders for food and drinks is somewhere around half eight or or nine o'clock. Now, the trade body that represents that sector, UK Hospitality, says that for some venues, that will halve revenue. This is for a sector that is really struggling for survival already. Footfall is not the same anywhere in the UK, not least in cities like London, And uh, already 100,000 jobs in that sector have gone. 900,000 are still on the line. Every day, Julie, we get news of more redundancies. Today, Whitbread, the owner 
of uh, the UK's biggest hotel chain, Premier Inn, saying they're looking to cut up to 6,000 jobs, and it just keeps continuing. This is lockdown light. This is only a few measures, but of course, this will be really bad news for all sorts of businesses uh, across the sector of hospitality. Julia? Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it, between the health risks here and trying to keep the economy going. And very quickly, because I'm watching people behind you walking past no one's wearing masks what's the deal with masks in the uk yeah, so this was also an additional announcement today. Currently in the UK, you have to wear a face covering. It doesn't have to be a surgical mask. You have to wear one on public transport. You have to wear it when you're inside a shop, inside a bank, uh, in many different settings. You do not have to wear one, however, if you're walking into a restaurant for sit-down service. Um, staff and shops currently do not have to wear them. That is set to change from Thursday as well. One of the new measures, uh, staff in shops will have to wear them. And people walking around a restaurant or around a cafe will have to put a face covering on when they are not sat down at the table, which is very similar to other European nations. I managed to get away to Portugal over the summer and it was a bit of a shock actually as to how much stricter face covering rules are elsewhere. Let's see if it can be ratcheted up. They are going to increase the fine from £100 to £200 for people that do flout that rule. Julia? Yes, and doing some due diligence there around Europe for us as well. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. <laughs> All right, here are some stories making headlines elsewhere around the world. A Chinese billionaire has been given 18 years in prison for a variety of corruption charges. But many suspect the real reason for the conviction is that he spoke out against Beijing's handling of the coronavirus. CNN's Stephen Zhang has been following the story. Julia, it seems the authorities have finally silenced this longtime critic of the government, with the court saying that Ren Zhiqiang has not only confessed to all of his crimes, but also decided not to appeal. Now, on paper, all of his uh, crimes are corruption-related, but the authorities here have long used this kind of charges to go after their critics. And Mr. Ren, who was born into an elite family of the ruling party and was known to have close ties to senior officials, wrote in that scathing article that a Chinese leader, without naming him, was a power-hungry clown who put the Communist Party's interests above people's safety. He also lashed out at the party's crackdown on press freedom uh, as well as its intolerance of any dissent. Now, his conviction and harsh sentence have been viewed by many here as a clear and chilling message from the party to Chinese elite that any public criticism or defiance of Mr. Xi is simply not going to be tolerated. Julia? Stephen Chang there. Now, U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham says Republicans have enough votes to confirm a new judge to the Supreme Court. In the past, Graham has repeatedly said that filling a Supreme Court seat in an election year is wrong. Graham is the chair of the important Senate Judiciary Committee. All right, still to come here on First Move, India's Serum Institute, the world's biggest manufacturer of vaccines by dose, is a key player in the race for a COVID vaccine. We're joined by its CEO. And Kani Asada back on the menu at Chipotle. The CEO joins us to discuss new dishes, sustainability and digital sales. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where the tech stocks are trying to bounce after four days of losses. September, as we discussed yesterday, traditionally a tough month for Wall Street. And this one's 
on track, in fact, to be the weakest since 2002. The S&P suffering its worst stretch, in fact, since February. The Nasdaq still near that 10% correction level, so 10%, 10% from recent highs. Apple shares are set to move higher for a second straight session. Meanwhile, they fell into bear market territory last week, so that's 20% from the highs. Tesla also under pressure this morning. Elon Musk trying to temper expectations for his battery day presentation later. He said innovations unveiled today will take a while to show up in all of Tesla's cars. That's called Elon Musk time, I believe. All right, let's move on. The global race for a coronavirus vaccine continues with nine candidates now currently in phase three trials. India's Serum Institute, the world's largest vaccine manufacturer by doses, is involved in one of those projects. The company is working with AstraZeneca to manufacture and distribute its potential vaccine. The SII also has partnerships with the U.S. Biotech's Novavax and Codagenics, and it's developing two vaccine candidates of its own. They're very busy. Joining us now, the Serum Institute CEO, Ada Punawala, fantastic, sir, to have you on the show once again. I believe that the last time we spoke, outside of the nations where you manufacture, India, of course, and the scientific vaccine community, people didn't understand how big you were. And now that's changed. What's that meant for you and for the Institute? Uh, Nice to speak with you again, Julia. Um, You know, between the time we spoke last and now, Uh, Like you mentioned, a lot of people have heard about us and our capabilities and our vital role in this this process of scaling up manufacturing. And because we're we've always been a privately listed company, you know, not a lot of people had heard about us. As a result, you know, the amount of overwhelming encouragement and partnerships that have been coming our way has really been um, tremendous. And as a result, you know, we've made so many partnerships, like you've mentioned, and we've got five candidates now um, with the Novavax and AstraZeneca products leading the way. And, you know, we're ge- gearing up to make hundreds of millions of doses. And as a result of, of, of you know, Serum Institute being known worldwide um, now globally, we're even going for a cap raise of about $850 million to help us fund the CapEx and OpEx, you know, to produce more than a billion doses now because we're going to have different vaccine candidates coming about. Wow. I mean, that's huge news and that's fantastic news if you're looking at potentially raising money. Can you tell us anything about who you're potentially talking to? Because we're all involved in this battle, every nation in the world. Who are you talking to to potentially raise money from? Well, we've got some Wall Street funds like TPG. We've got some in the Middle East, uh, PIF, ADQ from Abu Dhabi as well. And, uh, you know, you've got the, the usual suspects, KKR, Blackstone, and so many other great funds who have evinced an interest. But I think we're going to have multiple different rounds of capital raises. Initially, what I'm trying to just make sure is that I have enough um, for the facility itself and the huge OPEX, which is, you know, the glass vials, the raw materials, the chemicals um, uh, to have in place. And that's about $850 million. And as you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation also uh, provided a lot of advanced uh, vaccine manufacturing at-risk funding, um, you know, which was about $150 million a couple of weeks ago. So that's helped a lot in, in moving things along as well. It's fantastic. And you lay out there the challenges of getting vaccines from the point of research and approval simply 
to administer them to patients. And it's a logistical, monumental task that we're talking about. You made some recent comments suggesting that it could take to as early as 2024 before we get everyone in the world vaccinated. Why is it going to take that long, even with the challenges? What more do you need? No, so I think there's nothing more one can do because if you put things in perspective and become a little realistic, if you want to vaccinate everyone on the planet, and most probably with two shots, because most of these vaccines will need two doses, um, first, we're talking about developing a vaccine that is safe and efficacious, which, as you know, is ongoing. Then it's scaling up the manufacturing, which we're doing and, you know, a few other um, great companies in the U.S. and everywhere else are doing as well and in China. Um, then, of course, we're talking about having a huge budget, probably, I don't know, uh, if we're averaging $10, $15 a vaccine, of course, ours is much lower in price, 3 to $5. We're talking about billions of dollars needed to fund the vaccine procurement. And I haven't seen anywhere close to the kind of fund gathering required by these nations. And, you know, you should probably... Um, talk to uh, Seth Berkeley and Richard Hatchett, who are managing COVAX, to try and get enough funding there to be able to buy these vaccines. And then, of course, administering, administering vaccines in all these different complex geographies and countries. So realistically speaking, even if you have a billion doses, I'll give you a simple example. Take India. We have a population of 1.4 billion. If we, I've been talking to the government uh, very closely, as you can imagine. And by July, August next year, even if we were to produce 400 million doses, you know, they're still going to struggle to vaccinate everyone, you know, using those doses. So that's why I said realistically for the whole world, for everyone on this planet, um, or at least 90 percent to get it, it's going to be at least 2024. OK, you said so much in there that I want to touch upon. You obviously have made a choice. You're a private company. Your father started this because he wanted to get vaccines to the masses in developing nations. So you're making a choice that you can create this vaccine and give this vaccine for three to five dollars. Does it make sense that the big pharmaceutical companies, for all the investment in R&D, that they charge, you're suggesting, fifteen dollars here? Can they take less of a cut and put more of that money into developing more well, it's, it's, it's not fair for me to fully sort of answer on their behalf, but this is my personal view. If you've got listed investors and others to be accountable to, you need to, you can't leave money on the table like I've chosen to do and price my vaccines substantially lower, you know, to just make a small profit. I mean, these companies in the West, in the US have spent hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions of dollars developing these vaccines. Can they price it a bit lower? Perhaps. But, um, and you know, don't forget their costs also are much higher than ours, perhaps double. So there'll have to be some kind of um, give and take where maybe they don't charge $20, maybe they come down a little bit. You know, they'll have to decide because the deals that I've been hearing about in the news have been with Pfizer, Sanofi, GSK, you know, with Barda, they've been doing 100 million dose deals at $2 billion. So that roughly works out to $20 a shot. And, you know, if we're talking about two shots, then, you know, you double that figure. So maybe something between what we're at and between what they're at would probably be a fair price, you know, uh, if we want the whole world to be able to afford it. Because a lot of these other countries outside of the, of, of the U.S. 
will not be able to afford the vaccines. COVAX, which is where COVAX come in, and you mentioned it, a collection of money, a pool of money, and I think we've got around 70% of the world's population now joining, but we don't have the United States, they didn't join. We don't have China, they didn't join. What's your message to those nations about joining in order to make sure that developing nations get access to this vaccine quicker than they would have in the past? Well, I think it's just crazy if these nations don't join because, you know, if you don't support all these other nations, if the richer nations don't support the poorer nations, after all, we're a global economy. And if you, if these other countries don't open up, if the fear doesn't go away, and if, you, if they can't get access to a vaccine, it's not just the ethical issue here that we're talking about. It's, it's opening up their economies that we're all dependent on imports, on exports and trade. So, you know, if we don't all come together uh, for this common cause, then I think it's just, it's just crazy. But the ethics it here matter. Make- I agree with you, but I do think the ethics matter if people, frontline medical workers... Doctors in Africa don't get a vaccine when low risk people in wealthier nations do. It's sort of a bit heartbreaking, but the the ethics do matter. I want to ask you quickly. What I meant was that the ethics, of course, matter. In addition to that, you know, the the, the economic sort of view also uh, adds to it. So that's why it's even more crazy that we don't act together. (laughs) We are in a complete agreement. Um, I want to ask you about potentially working with China on their vaccine and Russia. There's been some debate within the scientific community that there's simply not enough data. How does the Serum Institute of India feel about working with those two nations on their vaccines? Well, um, we've kept an open mind. In fact, we've been talking to the Russians. um, And uh, at the moment, what we've said is that till we see and get more data, we probably would not want to take things forward. And, you know, they've already announced a few other partnerships. So I think they're globally trying to find as many people to make uh, Sputnik V. And at the moment, because we have five of our own vaccines, I think, you know, partnering with a sixth one might be too much anyway. So we're going to just wait for a few months, see how the data comes out and then and then take a call. I know there's been a lot of apprehension. And I think now, finally, countries like Russia, which never used um, you know, these sort of things to build relations with other countries is actually doing that, which is very nice to see. And I, I hope it all works out. I also want to ask you about the balance of uh, ethics, economics and developing a vaccine with respect to your own candidates. The point that you made about the cost of two doses versus just giving one dose, is it better perhaps to get a more potent efficacious vaccine and take a little bit more time that you only give one dose to that actually ends up working better and perhaps is economically more viable. That's that's absolutely right. In fact, that's exactly what we're doing with the two live attenuated vaccine candidates, which will be available in two years from now. But, you know, the world is just not ready to wait for two years. They need something quickly. And that's exactly why we partnered with AstraZeneca, Novavax and others who are way ahead in that race. And when our live attenuated vaccine comes about in two years or three years time maximum, I would say, uh, you know, maybe the world, uh, if it's not able to afford two shots, might prefer to take a one dose vaccine. So that's exactly the two pronged strategy that we're taking, you know, to address the immediate needs now and then a better vaccine or supposedly better vaccine comes about in two years time with one shot. So that's exactly what we're trying. Yes, absolutely. And perhaps that will 
uh, have among the sceptics a high degree of trust too? Well, it's not just that, you know, right now the vaccines and the regulators, as you may have been hearing, are reducing the benchmark and saying that even if a vaccine is around 50% effective, because it's a pandemic, that's okay. And I agree with them to a certain extent because it'll still save a lot of lives. You know, it's better than having nothing. Um, Also, at the same time, waiting for two years for a better vaccine is probably not the best strategy. One should keep working at that and on that whilst we have these earlier vaccines, which are also proving to be pretty good. I must say, I've seen the data and they don't look too bad. So that's where we are. Thank you for your work. Thank you for the team's work too. Great to chat to you as always and uh, hear progress. Ada Punawala, CEO of the Serum Institute of India. So great to chat to you once again. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open for business this Tuesday. Tech, the tech sector, trying to move higher after some four days of losses were higher by the three quarters of one percent at this moment. We've also got Fed Chair Jay Powell, who has the potential to perhaps give some underpinning to the markets today when he testifies before Congress. He's going to remind lawmakers that the path of the U.S. economy, I think, remains highly uncertain. He's also going to warn businesses may need direct fiscal support to further fiscal support. In the meantime, new health measures unveiled for England today are a stark reminder that COVID-19 is still very much present. US UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's new restrictions on businesses could last as long as six months as COVID cases rise there. And also a reminder, we're waiting to hear a pre-recorded video message from President Trump to the United Nations General Assembly. That likely coming in the next hour, and we will bring that to you. You're looking at live pictures there from the UN, though it is entirely virtual, of course, this time around. He says, the president, that it will include a strong message to China. So we shall see what he has to say about that. In the meantime, Chipotle's premium beef product is back on the menu. The takeout's favourite, carne asada, was a hit when it was introduced in 2019. The dish was removed early this year because Chipotle couldn't source beef that met its standards. The steak dish will be available across many of the 2,600 restaurants Chipotle operates. The fast casual chain is in five countries and employs some 91 thousand workers. And joining us now to discuss is Brian Nickel. He's the CEO of Chipotle. Brian, fantastic to have you on the show. I believe this was the fastest selling protein launch in history for the company. It was there and then it was gone really quickly. Sustainability, sourcing the right product was a tough challenge. Talk us through it and where you are today. Yeah, that's right. Uh, thanks for having me. And we're obviously really excited to be bringing back carne asada. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. We've been working hard to create a supply chain uh, that meets all of our food with integrity standards. And specifically, when it comes to beef, really only 5% of the industry hits our standards in regard to how it's raised. Uh, So, you know, it made it difficult for us to uh, get the supply in place. But luckily, we brought on some new farmers, some new partners, and we're able to bring it back. And uh, we're going to be doing it again as a limited time. Uh, And we're happy to say we're also including Canada in this. And also for the first time, we'll be uh, putting in our restaurants in France. So we'll have the United States, Canada, France, all uh, moving forward with carne asada, which is really just a terrific uh, eating experience. 
I have to say, I didn't try it when it was uh, when it was out the first time, but I'll, I'll give it a go this time around. Um, you gave an astonishing statistic there. Just five percent of, of beef that's reared in the United States actually meets your standards. I mean, just in terms of industry wide, how high are your standards then? Because you're talking no hormones, um, no antibiotics. Obviously, it's um, cattle raised responsibly as well, which is a key word. Are your standards that tough? Well, you know, the thing that knocks out a lot of uh, the beef is unfortunately the antibodies. So, um, you know, we've worked hard to partner with uh, farmers and cattle ranchers so that as they, you know, grow uh, and raise the cattle, we do it in a way that we believe results in the right treatment of the animal uh, that ultimately results in, we think, the best um, for our customers, both from a nutritious standpoint and uh, doing the right thing for the planet and the animal. Yeah, I mean, Farm to Food has had a real struggle this year with COVID-19. I read your sustainability report from 2019, and you said 56% approximately of farms simply aren't profitable. And then you add in the challenges of the demand shift that happened overnight with COVID, less supply for restaurants, more supply for, for grocery stores because people were eating at home. I mean, this year has been a huge challenge, particularly for farmers in the United States. Yeah, it really has. And, you know, we, as a result, we've tried to uh, step up our efforts in a big way. You know, we just launched uh, these tractor beverages where every beverage that we sell, 5% of that goes back to farmers. And then we have a, uh, a program called Illuminaries where we put in seed grants to help uh, farmers get started, both young farmers uh, and farmers that are making the switch to doing regenerative farming. And then obviously our supply chain, um, you know, we're one of the few companies with the scale that we have with the food with integrity principles and standards that we follow. So partnering with dairy farmers, cattle ranchers, traditional farmers, anything we can do to move the supply chain uh, in the right direction, and then support farmers, know that they will have a long-term contract uh, is a big deal so that they can plant the fields and raise the animals, uh, you know, in a way that we believe is responsible. Uh, and then they know that they have got a buyer on the other end. So uh, it's been a big deal. Luckily, um, I think that the country realizes farmers are hugely important and uh, people continue to rally around supporting them. And I think this is how people want to eat and people would love to see farmers supported in, in the right way. Yeah, and an intrinsic part of the, the message, I think, that you sell as a brand. Let's talk about what's happened since COVID hit, because I know your digital sales have soared. You're predicting, what, $2.4 billion worth of digital orders this year, and that was $1 billion last year. I mean, that's incredible growth. Yeah. Do you think that's sustainable? You know, uh, we do. We invested in the digital transformation of our business back in 2018 and 19, uh, because we heard loud and clear from both consumers that are young and old, that they wanted more access to Chipotle. And specifically, our younger consumers really wanted to have that digital access. And so, you know, what we've seen happen is by giving them access through the app, access in the web, now providing access with delivery, and then the convenience that these platforms provide where you order ahead, walk in, it's on the shelf, ready to go, you walk out, people just love it. And, you know, one of the other things that's astonishing to go with our pace of change in digital is the number of people that have joined our rewards program, which is also a key piece of our digital system. We now have over 16 million people in our rewards program. Uh, and at the beginning of the year, we had roughly 8 million. So, you know, 
And what we've seen is people stay engaged in this reward system and they stay engaged in the digital system. And even as we've started to open some dining rooms, uh, we're continuing to hang on to about you know, 70, 80% of the digital gains that we've had over uh, the last couple of months. So we think it's sticky. Um, we believe it's the future of how people will wanna access restaurants in partnership with still having the ability to come into our restaurants when the time comes that we can open those dining rooms all the way back to full capacity. You know, it's interesting, Brian. We were just having a conversation about vaccines here. How do you feel about vaccines and particularly for your workers? And I know you've, you're hiring several thousand more as a result of expanding drive-through capacity too. Will you have a conversation with your workers about getting a vaccine? Will it be mandatory? Yeah, I mean, actually, we were just talking about this on our, we were having an executive team meeting yesterday. One of the things we made clear is we want everybody to have access to the vaccine. Uh, and along those lines, we actually are in the process of making sure that everybody has access to a flu shot as well uh, hmm. for this upcoming flu season. So we're, we're working to make sure that everybody has access and we will help ensure that the flu shots get paid for all of our employees so that money doesn't become the barrier to getting a flu shot. On the vaccine front, obviously we wanna make it accessible. Um, our belief right now is it's not uh, our company uh, to mandate it on our employees. I would much rather have them take ownership for their personal health and well-being and make that decision. But I want them, if in the event they're in a high-risk group, they want to get the vaccine, I want to help them any way possible for them to get access to the vaccine and make it an affordable option for them to get vaccinated uh, if they want to do that. Is that a responsibility that you think all big companies should be taking Look, I think uh, for your employees, one of the things I think we've learned over time is a corporation is only as good as the employees you're able to attract and retain. And mm -hmm. I, I believe, you know, compensation, the way that your culture is created and the things that you do for your employees in the times of, you know, unique situations is what ultimately creates the scenario that people truly believe in their organization, truly believe in the culture. And for us, it's a big priority to invest in our people. Um, I want all 91,000 of our employees to be passionate about Chipotle, both our purpose, which you know is all around food with integrity and cultivating a better world. This is an opportunity for us to demonstrate how we're going to invest in our people uh, in these challenging times. So for us, it's a big priority. For others, they need to make that decision, but for us, it's an easy decision. It's consistent with who we are and the type of culture we wanna be. Yeah, an important message. Brian, great to have you with us. And just a reminder, in Canada, in France, in the United States, the beef is back. We got the message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great to chat. Well, hopefully you'll Thanks again. <laughs> yes, I'll, yeah, yes I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Brian, great to yeah. chat to you. The CEO of Chipotle there. All right, after the break, it's Tesla battery day. But will Elon Musk's message fall flat with investors? Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Tesla CEO Elon Musk holding a special event to showcase battery technology later on. He's expected to say that eventually they'll beat combustion engines in cost and convenience. Paul Monica joins me now with more emphasis on the word eventually there, Paul. Elon Musk tweeting last night that they're coming, but they could be a while coming. Exactly, Julia. He said in a series of tweets that they're really not going to be able to ramp up production of these batteries on a mass scale 
until 2022. So with that in mind, you still have Tesla needing to rely on third parties like Panasonic, LG, and others for these batteries. The hope is that eventually the batteries can have a longer life. He's hoping that, you know, that he's expected to tout maybe that you could have a battery that can last up to a million miles, which is, you know, more than double than the current uh, length. And that also, if you can bring down those costs, then maybe Model S, Model X, Model 3, Model Y, all of these expensive Tesla cars maybe become more competitive with gas guzzlers that obviously don't cost as much as Tesla's pricey electric vehicles. Yeah. And in the meantime, they're going to increase their purchases of battery technology from Panasonic and the, and the likes of LG. We shall see what he says later and whether there's disappointment, because I want to talk about Nikola parting for the exec chairman is sweet sorrow, but it's sweetened if you can walk away with $3 billion plus. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of controversy about the potential severance for Trevor Milton because of all of the concerns about just how legitimate this company's technology is. Keep in mind, Milton owns about 35% of Nikola's stock. So I think the key thing that investors have to watch is, are there going to be any stock sales from Milton as he's you know, kind of stepping back a little bit from the company, that would obviously be very suspicious. And I don't think investors would be thrilled to see that. And it would be vindication probably for Hindenburg and some of the other short sellers that are targeting targeting Nikola right now. Yeah, he's got to be very careful, hasn't he, selling stock at this moment. And, you know, I make the point of $3 billion. That's the worth now. It's got to be worth something in order to uh, actually uh, crystallize those gains. So um, we'll see how he plays it. Paula it Monica, thank you so much for that. Go on. Do you want to say something quickly? I was just going to say it used to be worth a lot more, of course. Because <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. Yes. Timing, they say, is everything. Yes. Paula Monica, thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to the show. First Move continues to focus on improving sustainability this week with a look at Poland. The nation's heavy reliance on coal is a major obstacle when it comes to carbon emission reduction. When it comes to carbon emissions reduction and transitioning to cleaner fuel could have another very real cost. CNN's Phil Black has more. The rough track turns a corner and we descend into a vast, unnatural space. A monument to humans' ability to change the earth. It's a sight sure to make climate activists despair. Poland's Turov coal mine and power station sitting together, locked in a high-carbon, long-term relationship that's not ending soon. Here at the pit's face, giant bucket-wheel digging machines gouge the earth away. Lignite, or brown coal, is sorted from waste and swept by conveyor belts directly into the belly of the power station, where it burns, generating 8% of Poland's electricity. What they pull from the earth here has provided energy for the Polish people, fueled their economy for more than 70 years, but it's also a source of security, of national pride and cultural identity. Whole families and communities have been built on this, and they will not give it up easily. 5,000-plus people are directly employed in the mine and power station. Many more live around them. The whole region's economy feeds off them. Tomasz and Marta Kukuc have worked in the mine for decades. 
So did his parents and his grandfather before them. They tell me they're proud miners who know action must be taken to slow down global warming, but not at the expense of everyone who relies on the mine. That feeling runs deep here, even with the members of the 69th Yachting Scouts Group. Like many teenagers around the world, they say they love nature and worry about the Earth's future. They're also proud to say they recently collected signatures for a petition to save the Turov coal mine. They don't see a contradiction. Amelia Tokarska says supporting the mine doesn't mean we don't support the environment. Turov has permission to keep going for another six years. The state-owned operators don't want to close until 2044. We go uh, definitely this in this way. But we have to do it, you know, uh, slowly. Just, just, just slowly, not uh, in one year, not in, in uh, two years. We need a little bit more time for it. That logic sustains Poland's dirty fuel habit. Around 75% of the country's energy comes from coal. There is gradual investment in renewables, but the government says coal power is here to stay until at least 2050. And while energy analysts say COVID-19 was an opportunity to close loss-making coal mines, Poland instead successfully lobbied against linking the release of the European Union's pandemic recovery funds to green policies. This all matters because independent analysis by scientists at Climate Action Tracker shows the EU is already a long way behind achieving its emissions targets under the Paris Agreement. The global accord thrashed out to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Like many countries, Poland faces difficult decisions. Breaking coal dependence will inevitably hurt people and change lives. But governments transitioning too slowly risk allowing far greater suffering across our warming planet. Phil Black, CNN, in southwestern Poland. Yeah, those difficult decisions being made all over the world and not being made in certain cases too. All right, that's it for the show. We're counting down to President Trump's speech, of course, at the UNGA, expected now in the next hour. But that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.